enjoy. Um, and good evening to everyone who's made it here, especially students who are in their busy, busy last week of the quarter. Um, so, the first time I heard Talia Fields' name, I was exchanging undergrad stories with a lover. She was telling me about unpublishable writing, a course that she took at Brown University. She showed me projects that she wrote in the course, which included a dollhouse furniture bed whose quilt and sheets bled with permanent markered words, a deck of cards, numbered sides covered in fragments of typewriter text on butcher paper, and with each shuffle, a new narrative was born. I swooned. The fact that such a class existed somewhere out there in the universe blew my mind wide open. This course was taught by none other than the famous Talia Field. <laughs> <laughs> you two really need to meet, my lover said. Three years later, I have the pleasure of being here right now and introducing Talia Field and her work to you. Field's words come to us from the intersections of poetry, theater, and essay. She'll school you on pigeons and other birds like nobody's business. And she's not afraid to ask her readers, are you sure species really exist? Her interest in a departure from the human-centered narrative is one of the motors that pushes her work forward. So forward that sometimes we must chase after it, calling out, wait up, wait up. The complex impartiality of the world without cinematic point of view makes for disorienting, broken, and beautiful frames is one way that Field explains this approach. She often uses history and historical characters to foreground the narrative basis of facticity, fantasy, and fallibility. Born in Chicago, Field attended, oh, I forgot how to say this, I forgot how to ask. <laughs> how to say this word, but she attended Lycee in France, in France and graduated with honors from Brown University. There she was awarded the first John Hawkes Prize in fiction. She's the author of three books from New Directions Press, as well as A Prank of George's from Essay Press and a performance novel entitled Ululu Clown Shrapnel with Coffeehouse Press. Her multimedia dance collaborations with Jamie Jewett have been performed at Dance Space at St. Mark's Church, New York City, and Green Street Studios in Cambridge. Field is a member of the Literary Arts faculty at Brown University and has taught at Naropa's summer writing program. And rumor has it, this is her first visit to California, but it's actually not true. This is her second visit. When it gets hard to write is when I feel beholden to some interpretation of things, Talia says. It's best to fall right through the floor of your understanding of yourself and all that you think is yours. So, in anticipation of the floor falling out from underneath us, please give a warm welcome to Talia Field. Thank you. That was really nice. I have to say, having come really far and only having been here one time before, I feel really at home here. And that's, thank you, Anna Joy. I mean, this is a truly a room of friends. I can feel that. Um, it's nice to have that so far away from home. So I'm going to do, we're going to perform two pieces for you today. And I have asked um, Lorraine and Frankie, you're both going to help me. So if Lorraine could come up. Um, <clears throat> the first piece we're going to read 
uh, is from Bird Lover's Backyard. This is my new book out with New Directions out this year. Um, this book was actually sort of accidentally made, not really, but sort of. Um, I'm researching a quite long, different book, and in the process of researching it, a lot of stories kept coming up and out, and um, I was once, uh, for a long time, a science student, and um, have, have an interest in the kind of storytelling that science is engaged in, and how it relates to the kind of storytelling that fiction and other artistic forms are engaged in. And um, I'm saying a little of this so that, because later if we're going to talk, then you'll know something. Um, <clears throat> so um, I, I actually wrote this book to, in order to sort of get out of the way a number of things that need to, to move out of the way so that my other book that I'm still working on could happen. I don't know if any of you have had a project like that. So this book came out of a great necessity to, t to, to get these particular series of linked pieces out. They are linked, although not in a pretty clear way. You'll hear in this one, we're going to read, like, for example, Martha, this poor pigeon. Um, she is a more of a um, main character in another story, and so are some of the scientists that you'll hear mentioned in this story. So even though they have a brief mention here, they're elaborated on later, or earlier in the book. Um, so this piece uh, takes about a half an hour to read. I'm just going to tell you that now. And then we're going to read a piece that takes about five minutes. So just so you know, to settle in. <laughs> if you start to feel like, oh my god, um, it takes about half an hour. Um, I want to thank my collaborators so much for reading with me. In case I have a total meltdown and need help, Frankie might jump up and be me, but it seems like I'm feeling okay, so hopefully we're going to make it. <laughs> okay. This crime has a name. If I were told that an octopus can talk and say English or Russian, I would consider it simply as a fact of its personal biography. What is it talking about is the only thing that matters to me. Marcus Tarovsky. I don't want to write this at all. <clears throat> not in English, not in any language, in any way it's already been written. Later there will be discussion, and others will call this a monologue or soliloquy. What's the difference? They won't know, and that's the difference. I must fill some pages now before it's too late. The pressure of planned obsolescence, of not being active in my semiosphere, the pressure of abstraction, a number written on my ankle band, 10114278. Whose umwelt is it anyway? This is barely the consolation of a minute. Please consider Tennyson, so careful of the type she seems, so careless of the single life. Nobody can understand what I'm saying. I mean, you, even though I am writing properly in English, and the title of my paper, Between Air and Space, has been on my mind for many years. Straight talk between organisms might add value for the speaker or for the receiver, but not many birds write papers. Am I a special case? A memory bird that died and kept right on living, exploding from one to many in mid-flight? I recall Wittgenstein saying that even if a lion could speak, we wouldn't understand him. I don't understand this, but it feels right. Talking about species is harder than talking about yourself. Some people propose that species are natural kinds with essential qualities. Others say species are simply DNA and decoded ancestry. Some think species are just flux, or individuals, or a matter of context, or mere convenience. Species have been called market investors, maximizing profit in speculations of self-production. You say species, I say illusion, past, present, accident, karma, nonsense, or I simply say nothing. Lying about names is the first sign of violence. 
There was in ancient China the school of names, or the name disputers, who argued the exact meaning of words. If species have a kind, then that kind has a specific language, a way of speaking with the world. But even Linnaeus couldn't find a trait belonging solely to one species. He invented the police or polity of nature, the rule that excess would always be controlled and nothing would be left unscavenged. Darwin replaced fixed species with evolving ones, an endless variety of response to daily life on a single planet. Finding a place in the economy of nature is the stuff of life. Vacancy rates, however, happen. I don't begin to know uh, how to name what's going on. Do you? I mean, I sort of get it. I'm not stupid. I get the big picture. But do I really understand? There's something about the way memory works which prevents this. Am I a unit of life, a unit of evolution, or am I simply the latest in a long series of mistakes? They called me Aluminum Green, my friend Orange Bam. They fooled us with taped bird songs and, and nets. Since there were no females to talk about it with, we were duped. We sang. Males may be a biological kind, but we are not a species. Can we invent females? We were exhausted looking. I tell myself I'm not a dusty seaside sparrow any longer since I don't form a functional part of the future of that group. In other words, is a species just something that can still make something of itself? Some dusty sparrow at another time or in some other place isn't part of my species because I cannot touch her. Let me put it as a philosopher might. If all gold atoms were to suddenly disappear, the class of gold would exist until more gold showed up. But if all the individuals of the species die away, the species is extinct, and even if creatures identical to me evolve, they will be counted as new. The same species cannot re-evolve any more than the same person can be born twice. Here in the lab, they control impressions. Out in the real world, I made a lot of guesses. Do I really remember what happened that day when the water rose? Some call it character displacement. Autobiographical memory serves many masters. Some say nostalgia is a pollution, and having memories is no different than having any other idea. Others say monologues are impossible, that everything is already a dialogue with yourself. They're clearly not the last of their kind. If I were designing the world, forgetting would be harder than remembering, and freedom would simply mean keeping your home. A private language is a compelling possibility. Since there's no one to check on it, it might just be silliness. But a language spoken by six is also silliness. I'm writing because I am a dead bird with five live brothers. Or is it the other way? Anyway, we're all dead. Could you translate for me at the right pitch to be heard above traffic? Or just wait till dark? Hello, reader? There's a social function to a call. Listeners are assumed. In basic math, only when the denominator is zero does six equal none. A marsh-loving bird in an age of space. What's the consolation of a minute? Death comes without warning. This body will be a corpse. But often there is warning, warning, and more warning. The corpse is a body in everything but name. Kennedy Space Center, renamed for a president assassinated. A president who put us on the path to the moon. <clears throat> the bullet that killed him took less than a minute, 2,000 feet per second. There was no warning. The Space Center took years to plan and design and permit and build. Originally called the Launch Operations Center, the home base for every rocket flight. They had to flood the St. John's River and Merritt Island. Later, when all but six of us dusky sparrows who lived on Merritt Island were dead, they hastily pulled together a captive breeding program at Disney World. But, oops, there were no females, and only five males could actually be caught. To tell us apart, they called us red, orange, white, blue, yellow. The sixth male, green, was never found, and maybe I'm still here. Many would take this as a warning. 
The decision to not crossbreed is based on economics and selective solicitors' opinions, not on biological or ethical grounds. All that is left to do now is prepare an obituary for the population. Herbert Kale. Someone named us Amadromus maritimus nigrisens, a non-migratory songbird once common in southern Florida. So, you're last, and there are a few others. You each say that you're last, which is true, and which is hard on the relationships. I'm last, no, I'm last, etc. <laughs> then there was the mimicry of dying. We drooled and soiled ourselves and flapped spastically. But the marshes still disappeared under new highways to the space center. Cord grass only grows in specific moisture conditions, so as one neighborhood was flooded and the other drained, there was nowhere to nest. Later, they tried restoring natural water. We flapped and acted totally diseased, hysterical, deranged, unfit for fast changes. We scared, we scared them. Native vegetation gradually returned, but it was too late. Population and pesticides deformed the eggs, and that left just the six of us. We remember the last female from around 1975. Oops. Please consider William James and his specious present what we perceive as the natural unit of time. Maybe this is one of those letter-from-the-grave cases which have recently be, been admitted in jurisprudence and which can be present at the same, and which can be present in the same sense a ghost can. You know, I love biographies, and Charles Otis Whitman was one of the first scientists to believe in observing the whole life story of a bird. He kept pigeons in Chicago. Instead of by how we look, he had the bright idea that species could be better defined by how we behave. So he and his student, Wallace Craig, took notes comparing the minute attitudes of ring doves, rock doves, and passenger pigeons, of which Whitman possessed the very last female. One wonders how extinction looks compared to regular old dying. With no successful breeding passenger pairs left, Whitman sent Martha to sit caged in a drawn-out public farewell at the Cincinnati Zoo. It's not so bad. Things end. Old Whitman froze himself trying to keep his rookeries warm, but all that assiduous note-taking revealed that J.J. Audubon's depiction of passenger pigeons in The Birds of America got the features right, but the poses wrong. The male passenger pigeons never strutted or bowed like feral pigeons or ring doves. They, hud hud they hugged up close to females who hugged close back. They didn't coo, but cod, a harsher sound. It was these little things that explained why crossbreeding never worked. They literally didn't know how to love each other. Even if we were to escape and fly back to the marsh tonight, I don't think we'd find it. Not because it's gone, but because memory of home can actually make it unrecognizable. I mean, what do we see at the Kennedy Space Station? Launch pads with massive rocket apparatus visible across the flat coast? Bouncy astronauts? Wallace Craig died deaf and poor, still writing his treatise on the space system of the perceiving shelf. His paper was never completed, and the manuscript is lost. It's common to say causes precede effects, and since perception is always caused, this explains why we can't perceive events which haven't happened. But our death is completely caused, and the death of my species too. Still, I must wait to talk about it. To be effective, I must stay in touch with what is going on in my own medium-sized spatio-temporal interval. If we all didn't commit to that, and we set about acting on outdated or far-fetched beliefs, we might go extinct even faster, or just act like jerks. They say building on past experience is more practical than imagining the future. So what, then, is a warning? Why can't we experience our death, even though it's happening at the same time as our life? Something prevents us. We might be able to know it, but not without giving up the world. 
All of a sudden, as if to make things interesting, biologists found another population of dusky seaside sparrows in a nearby marsh, and U.S. fish and wildlife was persuaded to purchase the land. But those sparrows died too, and the tract resold for development. If you think about it, there isn't much conflict in what's already happened. It's just not good story material. Even the ancient school of names is a taxonomical fiction. A dusky sparrow is not a sparrow, they might have said. Today, go to Florida, but arrived yesterday. They were called the disputers, name throwers, distinction wrestlers, logic destroyers. Mostly, they debated about the relationship of words to things, about the modifiers hard or white. Arguing both sides of anything, they loved lawsuits. They had no need for facts. They argued about same and different. Heaven is as low as earth. Mountains are level with marshes. Words don't have captive breeding programs or DNA. Words don't need a certain kind of cord grass. Quarreling can go on forever. All I know is there's a book on ornithology which has pictures of birds and also plays their calls. The reader is supposed to punch in the number for each bird to hear it, but someone forgot to put the numbers on the keypad, so it only has arrows up and down. The birds only sing in order alphabetically. Oops. John F. Kennedy. It will not just be one man on the moon, but in an entire nation for all of us must work to put him there. The whole space program started with the Bumper 8, sent up 10 miles from an outhouse and a ladder. Then came intermediate-range ballistic missiles and Vanguard high-altitude research rockets. More empty scrubland got cleared and filled for the inauguration of the newly named NASA program, and Saturn three-stage three rockets carried Apollo astronauts into orbit. But moon-going vehicles need more assembly room, so they added Merritt Island and 55,000 acres of submerged Mosquito Lagoon. The whole island was attached to Launch Complex 39, but the mosquitoes drove the astronauts crazy. When a bodhisattva, a reincarnation of Padmasambhava, or Buddha, passes into Parinirvana, the outer body sits in samadhi for many days, months, even eternally, never decomposing until cremated. He never comes back for happy birthday. In hindsight, they called us indicator species. I can't find food without my mud pools, mud flats. I don't like pesticide sauce on my mosquitoes. Actually, there were six of me, males of the species, blithely going about our daily business, just like the astronauts we had always wanted to fly. We set the table, we talked about manners and weather, we tried to have a spree de corps. At the very end of the line, without a female, there is no last in line. It's all a line, or a single spot, and it's all endless. There's a nameless math problem with no solution. Woody plants invade, predators increase when a marsh becomes un unsubmerged. Cape Canaveral didn't want people to witness rockets crashing or burning metal and fuel raining on the ground, so they controlled access. What parts of this story carry the themes and symbolisms? What parts are merely background? There are no extant writings of the name disputer, Hui Shi, though he appears in other people's texts. It is told how he relied on analogy. If you don't let him use analogies, he won't be able to speak. The king once asked Hui Shi why he wouldn't just talk directly. If you want the definition of a bird, Hui Shi replied, all you get is, a bird is a bird. You haven't learned much. But if you say, a bird is like a person except with wings, then you can expand what is known by pointing out the unknown, using the same to extend into difference. But even though he was a successful politician, Quaisher's lackadaisical relativism offended more ethics-minded Confucians. So what rhetorical stance should we adopt? 
Does art merely say things that aren't facts but assert them just as strongly? Assert things but refuse to prove them? Argue but not corroborate? Fictional characters know things which are too challenging for the writer to understand, though the writer tries hard to keep up. Characters outsmart writers because characters don't eat. Huisha's theses are described in the text Under Heaven and seem to conclude that distinctions exist merely as competing realities against the background of a world that doesn't prioritize any of them. Linked rings can be disconnected, he said. Does this story have to be set in front of a launch pad or a Disney World? Would it work at some unnamed turn in a river? Hard and white can be applied, and yet they are indisputable from, say, a hard white river stone or a lunar module. We likewise recall abundant and disappearing cord grass, 10, 15 feet above sea level, lower areas, too wet and dense, higher areas, too dry. Where was our pioneering spirit, some might ask? Why didn't we seem to have the right stuff? If you take away my home, it turns out I don't have a place to live. If I were a bodhisattva, I would have practiced for death from the very beginning, and in just the flash of one life, could rest my feathered body in samadhi, speak my last omahum, or whatever it is of Sparrow says, and never return to samsara. Universally care for the myriad things, Huishu concluded. Heaven and earth are one body. So we've been captive in this breeding program at Disney World since 1979. There's no cord grass here at all. The food comes in crickets and mealworms, and every afternoon a recording of a sparrow is supposed to stimulate our songs. A few years ago, frustrated by a breeding program without females, the staff brought in a related subspecies. We were pretty happy about that. <laughs> Bat crossing makes hybrids that are close to the original. Which traits do you think we maintained? The need for a certain marsh, marsh moisture, dappled sun filled with mosquitoes, a preference for Mickey Mouse? We got it on. Crossbred children breed with crossbred children until a chick with a very high percentage of dusky seaside sparrow genes, 97%, could live to finish whatever it was I was talking about in the first place. If only living were as easy as word wrestling. The name disputers loved rearranging same and different to produce sophisms. Meanwhile, the double, crossing, the double back crossing breeding program couldn't get the go ahead. Politicians argued that money for one endangered species couldn't be spent creating another one. I am red, but I will die. I am blue, I die before being moved. I am green, never found, presumed dead. I am white, fertile, the last hope. I die, leaving only orange, almost 12 years old alone. I am orange, I do not sing. I don't want to talk to people. I want to write unfinished papers. I am the Neil Armstrong of birds. Well, he was the first and I'm the last, but it's the same. People with checklists don't count me. I'm not a life bird anymore. Yellow, who died in 1985, was mailed to the Smithsonian in a bottle. Who cares that more people watched two astronauts take steps on the moon than ever watched anything before? There they were, two men as far from home as could be imagined, carrying the burdens and all the hopes of all mankind. At T minus 15 seconds, the guidance on a rocket becomes internal. 300 feet tall, new metal alloys, five engines, 7.5 million pounds of rocket thrust. Go for TLI. Flying up to deep space at 35,570 feet per second. There have been six successful moon landings. When you land on the moon and you stop and you get out, nobody's out there. This little limb and the two of you and you're on it on this whole big place. And that's a weird feeling. It's a weird feeling to be two people and that's it. Alabine, Apollo 12. 
A large population of manatees live in the waterways between Kennedy Space Center and Cape Canaveral. Over 500 bird species have been accounted for, including many wintering migratory birds. Some, say, some might say they're luckier than us, since they live in homes made of seasons and aren't so picky about food. I think that's like saying, a wheel does not touch the ground, or a turtle is longer than a snake. At the refuge, a manatee viewing deck and a seven-mile auto route for tourists, the Merritt Island Nature Refuge closes before and after blast-offs and during times of national emergency. We spent a few happy months with those closely related Scots sparrows, even sneaking in a clutch of eggs or two. But the chicks died for reasons too ridiculous to name, rats, window screens. And because we weren't officially allowed all that crossbreeding anyway, nobody officially noticed the deaths. This is a case of the government's becoming trapped in a semantic web of its own creation. The federal definition of a species is a nightmare of pros and conflicts with the species concept as used by biologists. The legal position that the dusky seaside sparrow is a pure race, such reasoning applied to a human population, would be called racism or mis misgeneration. Misogenation. Mis misgeneration. Francis C. James. Members of the School of Names were criticized for using words only to exhaust and distract, but from their point of view, using the right word implied the correct relation. If names are correct, order obtains. If names are misplaced, disorder. What caused names to be misplaced are dissolute explanations, schwo, also persuasions or arguments. If explanations are dissolute, then the inadmissible is deemed admissible and the not so, so. The not right is deemed right and the not wrong, wrong. The Annals of Louis Bouet. Reader, no matter what, the dimensionless cannot be accumulated, yet its size is a thousand miles. Quaisher, help me out. I hate the others. I love the others. We are all beyond safety in numbers. Fish and wildlife took away the Scott sparrows, enraging the Disney World breeders. Persistence of officials at the Office of Endangered Species in supporting this purity of the races concept has much potential for doing irreparable damage to the endangered species program as it might succeed through captive propagation. Fish and wildlife simply reply that the Endangered Species Act does not cover hybrids. So here's where my autobiography forks. On March 31st, 1986, I was the only one male dusky alive blind in an eye and old anyway for a sparrow, waiting to see what would happen or how it feels to be a piece of something big. My single body was a tiny spindle falling apart, yet holding this huge thing. It's hard to write this, clearly, as a character who might seem real. It's like when they tell you that arriving is always in the past. There's nothing more to this paper than the last words I knew for sure, June 17, 1987. After my death, the Disney employees didn't want to stop waiting in case another Dusky happened to fly in from the wild, the Space Center. They sat with my corpse a very long time. The coroner wasn't called until December of 1990, at which point I was officially declared extinct. I discovered later that I was described as the loneliest man ever in the universe, which is really baloney. I rather enjoyed it. I was certainly aware of the fact that I was by myself, particularly when I was on the backside of the moon. I remember thinking, you look over there and there's three billion people, plus two down there somewhere, and then over here there's one plus God only knows what. I felt it as awareness, almost a feeling of exaltation. It was a good feeling. I enjoyed that time. Mike Collins, the one who stayed in the command module, Apollo 11. A bodhisattva will often leave a letter telling of a time when he or she will take rebirth by choice in order to be a benefit again to all beings. 
There are tests which help people identify these emanations, tulkus, as they are born in the world around us. Discussion questions. <clears throat> what must it be like to be the first man on the moon? Hint, Alan Bean. I can't think of a negative thing about Neil Armstrong. I think it's wonderful that he's been the first man on the moon, even though he's somewhat reclusive. That helps to preserve the image. That's a tough role. Why is the dusty seaside sparrow not a sparrow? Why was the dusky seaside sparrow not saved by the Endangered Species Act? Solve for six if six equals one and six equals zero. Are you sure species exist? What is your species concept? Explain the sophist paradoxes. Eggs have feathers. Or Merritt Island is on the moon. Bonus paradox. The shadow of a flying bird has never moved. If we could hear the last words of a the last words a bodhisattva utters as he passes into Dharmada, would we understand them? When you see the Kennedy Space Center on the news, can you forget that sometimes death comes without warning and sometimes with plenty of warning? Consider Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14. The biggest joy was on the way home. In my cockpit window every two minutes, the earth, the moon, the sun, and suddenly, I realized that the molecules of my body and the molecules of the spacecraft and the molecules in the bodies of my partners were prototyped and manufactured in some ancient generation of stars. And that was an overwhelming sense of oneness, of connectedness. Thinking everything is one, how can you still say anything? <clears throat> he adapts his this to the situation, that's all. Adapting and not knowing is, is it... Adapting and not knowing, it is so. It is called Tao. Thanks. And now for something completely different. <laughs> okay, so um, this, this is a very small excerpt from this book, which came out from Essay Press also this year. It's called A Prank of George's, and it was co-written by me and a French woman named Abigail Long with the Englishest name of all, but she's actually a real French person. Um, and uh, this book is an essay, technically, um, uh, about Gertrude Stein's, well, it's not how it was written, but now that it is written, it's about, sort of, um, it, it's kind of a riff or a playfulness around the use of proper names and Gertrude Stein's obsession with proper names as the basis for understanding personality. So um, it has a lot of the historical momentum uh, of, of Stein's uh, ob obsession with proper names, but around that obsession, Abigail and I played going into a lot of dimensions, advertising theory, um, I always bring in a lot of science stuff. But anyway, so um, all we're reading is the very introductory section. Um, Frankie is going to be Gertrude Stein, <laughs> and uh, Lorraine and I will do the rest. Oh, it's written in machines, so you'll hear the machine names. Machine for making a scene. To stage an ancient Greek play, make a wheel on the machine for the pulley-pulley of grammar of George. And you will be assigned your Francis and your George. One might say they were both called Francis, and anybody called Francis is elegant, unbalanced, and intelligent, and certain to be right, not about everything, but about themselves. 
At least such has been true of any Francis, as Francis in history or I, or as I have known them. Pull in a circular step in a circle outside, all written without rehearsal, an idea to submit to the Archeron eponymous. Community official in charge of plays, who will tax the neighbors and pull the strings? Who will pay? Archon eponymous, Helen and Achilles, Achilles and Helen. Frank could be called George if one were used to it, but one is not. To switch masks and costumes between scenes, to fill the shoes and parts, a part of the chorus itself goes around. Unless revived, each play performs only once. Anybody called Francis is elegant. What a name is George. What an average is George. What a land is George. Tragedies think of the past, comedies the present. George is a very full and resounding name and has been given where it is suitable, but it must always be given first. It must always be given first. It reigns in comedy and remembers tragedy, the nostalgic wetness of the brain on itself. The part that reigned is the tragedy gadget. Before the play, there is the event before the play, the order of the plays drawn by lots, the piglets before the plays slaughtered on the stage, the taxes from the city spread out. Line up the audience in the theatron from where they view the parados, emptying actors and chorus to the stage and eliminating them and returning them to the stage in new masks as the same actors. People, if you like to believe it, can be made by their names. The possibilities for verbal adventure contained in George. So the machines are presented and the judging of the tragedies and comedies takes place. By George, le nom fait la chose. Machine for identifying individuals. A. An engine revs for a good billion years and the slick of wastewater cuts the canyon. For justice cannot be the property of a single specimen. Test the water where molecules cling together. They... There are only just and right moments between friends, strangers, family, enemies, and groups where laws live. Sea identity means all share properties. That should be you. Okay. There's no affaire oh. de faire. No, no. We're skipping the French. <laughs> so to eliminate the breakdown of the machine, do not allow an infant to be compared to the adult without confusing properties which the infant can't yet possess. Like enemies, the baby doesn't yet know the same object. A sea pen, for example. Can exist in multiple worlds, and has thereby a compound hybrid machine attaching it to counterparts in other worlds. After all, an individual can be imagined to have properties different than her real properties, properties which aren't owned, lived in, polished, or abandoned. An abandoned infant cannot be the same as the married adult, even if they're both identified as George. It's the temporal parts of the machine which need fixing. So individuals can be slowed to the speed of their properties. Barring yesterday, she was born today. And she was born today, it was nearly as carefully prepared as possible. Possibly she was born today, and it was as carefully prepared as possible. It was as carefully prepared as possible, and she was born today. So much for that. If we can name George in this possible world, or mistakenly think that a possible world is just a foreign country, we have a criteria to recognize George in another possible world. Or, if we can't pick George out from a sea pen, when touched, sea pens emit a bright greenish light, we can't pick out George from an enemy, or an enemy from an infant. And all his qualities in this world swim in front of us, kicking up parts, stipulating that the parents of George must also have non-trivial and individual properties. 
even though we must still be able to ask ourselves, in what possible world would George really be a sea pen or an enemy? This requires the non-trivial individual essence of George to be dried out and separated from the rest. In this possible world, George could be a little more a sea pen and the sea pen a little more George. And then the machine makes another possible world in which the sea pen is even more George plays more the George role and George more the sea pen role and on and on until for all practical and non-essential purposes the sea pen has taken the identity of George and George the pen with no essential quality to their individuality to anchor them every enemy of the sea pen now perceives only an enemy in George <laughs> thank you Hi. So now I guess we're going to have questions. Well, yeah, we were writing it in a very playful way. We, we knew we wanted these machines, and we sort of knew the machines had to do with the tension between the collective and the individual. And that was more where we started, kind of. And then as we moved through it, Gertrude Stein just became the muse. And then she became more and more and more and more part of it, so that actually when we looked at it all, we were like, wow, this is sort of an essay on Stein, even though that's not how we started. Because if we had started that way, it would have been much smarter than it is. Like, it's actually not trying. It doesn't have any answers or make any big statements. It's just that it's a playful exploration of something. Does that make sense? Like, And because it was playful, it's freed from all need to be saying anything. <laughs> yeah? We're really about the collective yeah. versus the individual. Yeah. Like that's not a question. So anyway, the language that you um, were sometimes using in that second piece about uh, non-trivial properties—is there a source text for some of that language? Um, it comes from philosophy, mostly analytic philosophy. Um, you know, which was very, which I have always, I always seem to have a bit of a bone with, I have to say, the notion that language represents itself mathematically. And so I, in a lot of my work, there's always a, a kind of a pulling away from assumptions that have to do with the role of language as, as, um, as a predictable medium, I guess. And so, and so yeah, it comes, it, it's, I mean, I don't remember exactly where that particular language comes from, but in general, that whole rubric um, comes from you know the identity principle often, or uh, questions in analytic philosophy about how you can recognize a statement A versus a statement B. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on that too because I noticed in the, in at least in the first piece you, you're referring to Wittgenstein mm -hmm. language games, and you're also referring to the death of the spe the extinction of the species. So I was wondering how you're combining these two things, and whether you see a relationship between these two issues. I have to bring it back to my, I'm not like a, for, for me, the reason they relate is because something about storytelling um, 
that piece in particular, I mean, I think that there's, there's a tension in storytelling. Either we can kind of think that there's things that are devoid of a relationship to reality, and then there's a whole school of kind of lots of thinking and lots of thinkers that seem to want language to, to exist on a plane where it is not representative of, it doesn't have a correspondence to things. And in that story, the, the tension is, well, what about, yes, so we can have lots of philosophies where language is, has been severed from its relationship to the world. But what about things where language matters, where if you call it this, so, so the tension between when is there an ethical relationship to language that, that is beyond some kind of perception of it as, as, as um, not bearing that relationship. And so I think that um, the reason I use that quote is actually not as a critique of Wittgenstein, and I'm not a scholar. So it's more that, the, the, that, that we think that we couldn't, the reason we can't understand other species is not a language issue. That's the point that, that, that storytelling in that piece is trying to make. It's not about language. If it spoke English, we still wouldn't understand it. It's because it lives in a different kind of world, and the, and the meaning would be different than our meaning. And it's not just a, it's not a translation issue. It's another kind of issue. That's, that's what I think I'm using that Wittgenstein to support the idea that there's a context more than the quantity. Um, the, the epigraph for this book, there's a piece in here because I um, worked with a famous dog trainer for many years, and the... Um, the quote that I start with, with from Vicki Hearn is, um, never trade awareness for language. That, that there's, a, there's a sense of awareness of being that, that can't be represented, and so that, that the tension is between those things. And that's why at the end of the piece, you get the oneness versus the specificity. Like, there's a tendency to be like, well, all is one, everything's the same, you know, that kind of thing. But, but where is that challenged? Where can that be challenged? Because it is true, and I'm not saying, saying one is more true, but they're both true. It's a both and problem. Is that? Yeah, well, I, I thought with your interest in, in the taxonomy of birds, the, the, the cataloging of their numbers and things like that was at least uh, about the attempt to name right. all of those things and, and, and contain them and stop them in a certain way. And that your work was, in a way, kind of going against that taxonomic right. imperative. Yes, and, and the notion of hybridity is taken up again. I have a long section on Conrad Lorenz. Um, and uh, his, his, the way he uses storytelling um, to, to talk about hybridity. So that, I'm sorry. So what in that piece <clears throat> is looking at hybridity from one angle gets taken up again through different stories in the book from a lot of different other angles. Um, so it's not just, there isn't just one question like that. It's, does that make sense? But <coughs> yeah. Um, I was very interested that the Gertrude Stein's theory about uh, uh, certain kinds of names, right, being associated with certain people, certain kinds of characteristics, and, and I wondered maybe if you could elaborate that, like in terms of Stein's terms, a little bit more what she thought she was doing. And the other thing that I thought immediately in relationship to that was, of course, 19th century European ideas that different countries had, that the people of different countries had certain essential characteristics, like if you were a French, there was a certain basic thing about your character, and so forth and so on. Is Stein really just sort of extending well, those ideas? No, you know, she, she worked with James at Harvard on personality, um, and so that's actually a lot of the material we use in here, um, is sort of a, um, is, well, a little bit of that material from, 
she, she, long before she was even the writer she was, was very interested in questions of psychology and, and came up with these weird notions about the bottom natures. So there's a lot of um, play on the bottom natures in here um, and, and as it relates to naming. We, instead of the 19th century stuff, we use Mencken. So there's a lot of Mencken on, because a lot of the book talks about Americanization. So, and she talks a lot about being in France and, and interviewing soldiers and where they're from, like this notion of the provenance of a person as related to their personality as well. So we use the Mencken and all of his American, you know, he, he, and we, we play with it, but um, there's a lot of sections about, you know, what happens to different names when people move to America. And I did some research on um, New Orleans in particular because of the French. So we have a whole section that talks about the, the, the Americanization of French, Frenchness um, of, of names. It's pretty playful. I mean, it's, it's associative in its logic. That's what I, we're not, it's an associative form of an argument, which actually I tend to be comfortable in, um, which I think you probably see it in both. I, I like to argue or, or argue myself around some thinking. So, but anyway, we use Mencken instead. I just wanted one little follow-up. Yeah. So what was it? What was science theory? You know, it never got that developed. She was a student, and she worked in the psychology lab. And Michael is here. I mean, you probably know more than I do. I am just not a scholar, but I mean, she uh, she she worked on attention. I mean, what she worked on at Harvard had to do with how people could re re recall stories they were told while they were paying attention to something else. And we have, we have a few of those little experiments in here. So they would repeat a sound while they were listening to something and then have to say it back, um, which is so much reflected in her later work, if you, can th if you think about that, and the notion of a memory and also repetition. So, um, so we played with that. But we did look at her. I don't, I, you know, she diagrammed personalities and would come up with these bottom natures, which were related somehow to, partly to their names. And she, as you know from her work, she was, always playing with people's names and a, a huge quantity of her playfulness is in we found those parts and those are all in here I don't have a I, like I said the difference between me and a scholar is that somebody has to like we're playing <laughs> playing with research um, well it's an important distinction I think I mean I don't have to live or die based on whether or not I'm scholarly making a point, I guess. Um, I think we approach it as we like to do research. Obviously, I do tons in my work, but, it, but it, um, it's not to... It's to talk to that audience. In fact, I spoke to an environmental studies class uh, a little while ago, and I was fascinated at the different reading I got from them because they knew so many of the people. I was talking about so much of the theory, like just the science, and it was really pleasurable to realize like that was a different, completely different audience. Um, but I'm not like, you know, I'm not having an art, you know, I don't have a thing. Yeah? Do you ever, you ever uh, struggle writing, feeling too scientific or anything like that? Have you ever, do you ever regret having like science leak into your life? I'm looking forward to the day when I've purged this. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> um, actually, my first few books didn't have quite as much. You would see it in a tiny way, but then this. This book just I had to get it out. It had really built up. And then the next, this, I don't really want to talk too much about it. I'm working on a big book now. It's a historical book about science. And that book will hopefully be the very last of, of this, of this uh, arc, of this trajectory of mine. It's not my only interest. I, it's just that for now I, seemed, I seem to need to talk about 
the scientific storytelling tension that I'm engaged with. And so now I'm looking at a, the next book looks at a historical moment of that in, in depth um, from the 19th century. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's funny, as a teen, I'd never done it before. I, I have a background in theater uh, for many, many years, and that's always a collaborative effort, although I was the director, so I was always in charge. <laughs> I think I'm an in-charge person. Um, so I never, um, I'd never done it before, and I think, I have to say, I think it's a matter of finding the right person. I mean, I can't imagine having done it with anybody else. Um, but having never done it before, I also don't know what to say. I only know that... This was the most, like, just so much fun. Um, but it was because of, I think, who the two of us were. I do want to say, I, when I teach, I often have my students do collaborative projects, and I hear, oh, and home and home and home. And, and no matter what happens in their collaborative project, the reason pedagogically that I want students to, to think about collaboration is because actually, I think that's what you do with yourself when you're writing. Like, I think the best writing comes when you have a collaborative relationship to yourself, where you can have an idea and be like, ooh, wow, great idea. Like, you're, like it's not like you, like, you can be in that kind of dialectic with yourself, or like, or, mm, not convinced, let's try this. Like, you know, to, to be able to negotiate with your own mind as though it was another person is really, really helpful. And so I think I already do that naturally. I have, like, too many voices, if anything. And so there was... There was an ease with Abigail because we had that only but just more. Nobody was like stuck or ever got stuck in any assumption about it. Does that make sense? Do you do a lot of collaborating? I just did. I had my first collaborative and? experience and it was exhilarating. Yeah. But also at moments frustrating um, when you realize you're coming in with different assumptions. Sometimes. That's the only time I think it is. Yeah. But, th but that should be frustrating. For you to, like, I guess my point, like, I don't think there's anything particularly different about it that you wouldn't have with yourself, except that with yourself, you tend to plow over yourself. <laughs> and were you physically together? No, nope, she, we, yeah, we gave ourselves assignments, and then we would get together probably every three or four months, mostly in France, and then um, do the, we had a list of machines we wanted to accomplish. We would sort of both be working and then send them around and... It was fun. It was magical. I mean, I honestly don't know how this book... I mean, the fact that there is a book is funny to me. <laughs> it was magical. Yeah? I saw in your bio that you worked on, um, like, new music theater, like Robert Ashley, Larry Anderson. Well, I edited uh, an issue of Conjunctions on um, experimental music theater scores. Um, that was one of the things I was particularly interested in in theater when I worked in theater was alternative manners of representing... Um, text for performance. And so when I was at Conjunctions as an editor, I wanted to do an issue because I think that alternative music scores are so instructional for writers on the page about how to achieve a certain level of dynamism in the work um, and not just think of the page in its generic conventions. So I, yeah, I had Meredith Monk and Robert Ashley and I mean a whole list of other people. Yeah, I definitely felt some resonances of your sort of associative argument style with uh, Ashley. Uh, Ashley is a huge influence. I mean, I love him. I think he's an astonishing and underappreciated artist, at writer, really. <clears throat> His manner of storytelling is so dense, so woven and complex. I mean, I, I take that as an enormous compliment. Can you say any more about how it, your he's influenced? 
Um, I think trusting the audience to like to, to be able to layer the way he layers and, uh, it was, uh, but I also like I I'm a very I hear in a theatrical way when I'm writing. I hear voices and I and I see things. So it's like I think just the way he. Yeah, the, the dense weaving of his of the storytelling that he achieves I, what gave me a big permission. Like, it's okay to be densely woven. And I've all, I always, as a student, got feedback like, this is so dense. <laughs> but, you know, it's important to have your pantheon of, of people who give you permission, you know, to do what you want to do. And Ashley was definitely up there in front, you know, leading. It's okay. Be dense. It's fine. Anything else? Be dense? Should we leave it on be dense? <laughs> yeah. Could you say more about the, the machine as an organizing formal device? Like, how did that appear in the collaboration? We wanted these machines and pulleys, and we called them the pulley pulleys and the machines. It was that silly. I have no idea. I think Abby, who is much more in the world than I am, um, got lots of smart people to write things about the book, and somebody even said something about the machines. I don't know if it's... Oh, yeah, here's, here's Susan Howe being all smart. For William Carlos Williams, a poem is a small or large machine. Now, who knew? I didn't know. <laughs> See, that's all sorts, of, all sorts of things get applied to your work after you do it that you had no idea. So there's the smart answer to that question. We did not have that answer. Um, but, yes, yeah, there will always be... Wonderful, and there should be more, more critics. I hope many of you will go out and write wonderful things about work because there's not enough smart, wonderful things being written about contemporary work, I don't think. Um, but anyway, people will say all sorts of things after you've done things that will make, make it look like you've intended it. Bird Lover's Backyard because it's examining scientists and others who love birds and this notion of our own backyard and things we, we do in backyards and what the implication of those two things together are. So each piece either has people who are loving or hating or telling stories about birds and then this notion of our own backyard um, especially has to do with science and an issue in science around whether we're narrating, like this notion of the life story is a big deal in ethology and animal behavior, and so it comes up a few times. Um, and I think that the life storiness of it brings in this question of the arc of, of life and death. And so um, 
it has, yeah, I mean, there's some hard-hitting pieces in here, I would say. It's, a, it's a definitely a polemical book. I don't think, I mean, it's written as literature, but it, I'm tr I am arguing almost a lot. And even if the arguments don't land as, as such, they're, they're, they're trying to be arguments. Yeah, it felt that way. And it felt different from right. your other work in that way. Yes. No, it is an argumentative book. I'm arguing. I want it to be read that way. It's like, and especially with the rents. And I mean, you know, I'm bringing in controversial things and not all con or whatever to, 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 to look at them through other lenses and say, like, are we really sure how we think about that? Like, are we considering this? So I think it is me wrestling more than perhaps just not wrestling. <laughs> that is the most I've ever said about, like, that's a hard question. Thank you. <laughs> Well, it's lovely here in California. You're very lucky to live in so much sunshine. <laughs> it's beautiful in March. Thank you for having me.